Well, it is now my absolute honour and privilege to give our keynote speaker as much time on this platform as possible. Um, I have loved doing the research on Michael McQueen and, and reading his books and, and looking at his YouTube and his, uh, his uh, websites and his messages, and they are powerful. They are an incredible message. I know today that we are going to be extremely blessed. See, Michael McQueen understands what it takes to thrive in a rapidly evolving world. He is widely recognized for having his finger on the pulse of business and culture. He has helped some of the world's best-known brands navigate change and stay ahead of the curve. Michael has written six best-time-selling books and is a feature regularly, in, a feature regularly uh, as a commentator on TV and radio. His work um, has featured in publications ranging from the UK Daily Mail down to the Huffington Post, having presented to over 500,000 people across five continents since 2004. Michael is a familiar face on the international conference circuit, having shared the stage with the likes of Bill Gates, Dr. John Maxwell, and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. Would you please help me welcome, in the most enthusiastic fa uh, fashion, Michael McQueen. Thank you so much, Jeff. You're a good man. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Well, it's a lovely, lovely introduction. Thank you for that welcome. It really is a thrill to be here, and, um, and thank you for that introduction. Thank you, Val and Sandra, Tony, for the invitation to be a part of today. Tony, when did we first speak about me being here? Like, it was 11 months ago or something like that, a long while ago. It's just been sitting in my calendar. I've been so looking forward to being here. Because I don't know if you guys realize this, but all the speakers talk on the conference circuit. And I've spoken to colleagues. So you had Chris Helder here last year, I think, and Keith Abraham the year before. And so you guys need to know you've got a reputation of being an incredibly fun group to speak to. So I'd been told to look forward to this. So it's great to be here and just get a feel for what's going on. So who are the ones that are going to the Caribbean next year? How exciting. Woohoo. Um, and so we're going to talk about a theme that actually has been set up beautifully already this morning in that presentation, that beautiful clip. I hadn't seen the full clip from that army officer. Wasn't that an amazing commencement speech? I'd heard snippets of that um, on Facebook, but the whole thing is actually just profound truth. Um, but he set that up beautifully with that whole notion of make your bed. Why? Because it sets off a chain reaction that not just changes your day, but can change the course of your life. Something as simple as making your bed. I'm going to talk about a theme this morning over two sessions, because we're going to have one session, then a little lunch. We'll duck out there, have some food, come back in for the second session. I'm going to talk about this theme, though, over these two sessions of momentum. How do you set up a chain reaction in your business and your life that can radically change your results? And by the way, in this sort of business, as you're building your downline team, as you're speaking to new people, as you're recruiting, sponsoring, as a leader, this is the most important theme to growing a business that sticks. We'll talk about not just how do you get traction, because who's been in the business for only a little while? Who's relatively new here? Hands up, who are the newbies-ish? A few of you. So the big challenge when you're new is to build momentum, to get traction, and it feels so hard in those first few months sometimes, because you're getting off go. We'll talk about the science behind that. How do you break inertia? But once you've got momentum, the next challenge is how do you keep it? Okay, but then if you lose it, if you lose that edge, how do you get momentum back? How do you recharge the stuff that was there previously? We're going to talk about all those themes this morning. Just to get our heads, though, in the zone, I want to take you all back this morning to high school science class. 
Okay, to somewhere around the age of 15 or 16, this is something you would have all learned in high school science, and I want to um, play a bit of a game with you this morning called, Were You Paying Attention? Okay, and what I want to do here, this is going to be interesting, I want to take you back to high school science, I want to ask you a question relating to what you learned in that class, and I want to test your memories, see how many of you were actually paying attention. Here is the question I want to ask you this morning. Which law of physics states that matter left to itself will always tend toward decay and disintegration? I love your face. Like, I have absolutely no idea. All right, who's looking at this question knows you were not paying attention? You've got no clue what the answer to this question is. Who doesn't know? Okay, lots of you. You seem to know. All right, I'm going to give you four options, multiple choice, okay? So this is going to make it a little bit easier. Is it A, the law of atrophy, is it B, the law of dystrophy? Is it C, the law of entropy? Or is it D, the law of dysentery? Okay, those are your four <laughs> options. So, so I'm going to give you like a 10-second countdown. Turn to the person next to you. See if you can compare memories. Then we'll come back and do a bit of a straw poll. So there's your countdown. You've got 10 seconds. Might turn that countdown up if we could. All right, a few people trying to remember high school science class. All right, there's your buzzer. All right, show of hands. Who reckons it might be A, the law of atrophy? Who's going to go with A? All right, a few very confident A's here. Okay, interesting. All right, who's going to go for B, the law of dystrophy? I'm going to go for B. I love the lack of confidence. Like, I have no idea. Whatever. I'll give it a shot. Okay, cool. Who's going to go for C, the law of entropy? Just for fun. Just for fun. I love this. <laughs> I love your hair just for fun. It's awesome. Okay, and what are, all right, there's only one in most quotes. Is anyone going to go for D, the law of dysentery here this morning? There's a whole lot of you. I love that. Okay. Now, this, this is cool because you know the correct answer? Only one person got it. Just for fun. The correct answer is actually C, the law of entropy. Okay. Now, remember in school, our teachers, your teachers would be so proud right now that none of you much got it right except for you who was joking, okay? In school, remember we were taught stuff like this, and our teachers would say, pay attention because one day you will need to know this stuff, right? And we were all 15, and, you know, 15-year-olds know everything, of course. It's like, you know, as if I'll ever need to know this. We didn't listen to our teachers. And I probably said the same thing back in Year 10 Science when I learned this stuff, not realising a number of years later... I would dedicate a chunk of my career to studying that law and how it applies to businesses, to organisations, to institutions. In fact, just to give you a bit of a backstory before we launch in this morning, I've been studying social trends, business trends now for coming up to 14 years. But a very pivotal year for my research was 2011. And if you cast your mind back to that year in the business world, that was a very pivotal year for a couple of reasons. But the big reason was that was the year we saw a number of iconic businesses, big brands, fall prey to that law of entropy. Brands that have been at cutting edge for years lose that edge and in some cases file for bankruptcy, disappear entirely. In fact, in the space of four months, the world saw the demise of three big brands. We saw Borders Bookstore close up shop, which surprised me actually. They, they went from being at the cutting edge to disappearing very quickly. Um, Saab Automotive. Who's ever owned a Saab in their life here? Saab Automotive filed for bankruptcy in 2011. Um, the big one, though, was Kodak. And, of course, even though we knew it was coming, it was like a slow-moving train wreck, okay? We knew it was on the way. It wasn't going to last for long. When Kodak filed for bankruptcy, that was just the symbolism. It was, was massive. I mean, they were the Apple. They were the Google of their day. And to see them go from that point of market dominance, massive success and wealth, to having to close up shop is just extraordinary of what's to unfold. 
And so seeing all these businesses fall over in rapid succession, back in 2011, I embarked on a research project and spent the next three and a half years tracking 500 brands, organizations, institutions right across the spectrum, and not just businesses, social institutions, charities, churches, nonprofits, the whole spectrum of understanding how do organizations that have been at the cutting edge lose that edge? Like organizations that have been growing and flourishing and well-known, what happens that causes them to essentially go backwards, in some cases very rapidly? I mean, you think of how many brands and businesses we've seen experience this over the last few years. This is just a bit of a snapshot. In fact, a few of these brands have joined this list of failing businesses, the businesses that have gone into entropy just in the last few weeks. So Rockport Shoes up there filed for bankruptcy in America almost three weeks ago, coming up to three weeks ago. We saw Nine West file for bankruptcy about six weeks ago in the US, and my wife was devastated when she heard that, and she loves Nine West. But you think about the significance of some of these. I mean, Sears is a big one. So I landed into Montreal late last year for a conference. The day I landed, I opened the local newspapers at the hotel, and that was the day that Sears Canada had filed for bankruptcy. That's massive. They announced last week they're going to be closing at least two-thirds of their stores nationwide. I mean, you look at Toys R Us. Amazing. I mean, in fact, I think it was only late last week the announcement was made that they'll be closing their stores here. And as a father of a two-and-a-half-year-old, I'm like, I am going to be at that closing down sale at Toys R Us. There were some great discounts, I suspect, at Toys R Us. But a few of them really stand out to me. I mean, one of them, the top right-hand corner, Blackberry, is an interesting one. I mean, how many of you, I, sh I should check, does anyone here still use a Blackberry? I just... I, I have to check before I talk about them. You've got a BlackBerry. We've got one in our midst. Okay, awesome. I'm going to talk about BlackBerry users because they're still out there. In fact, I was next to a guy on a flight a few weeks back, and he was using a BlackBerry, and I wanted to take a photo because I'm like, <laughs> like, this might be the last time I see. Maybe we need a photo at lunch because like, it feels like when you still come across BlackBerry users because here's the interesting thing. We've got one in the room. How many of you have ever owned a BlackBerry phone? Hands up. There's a whole lot more ever in the past. Yeah, lots of you have. Now, interestingly, look at them as a business. So January 2010, BlackBerry in America had 43% market share. When they were, they were the dominant handset. Within two and a half years, it was 0.7 of a percent market share. Right? That's how quickly you can lose your edge. Now, another brand that stands out to me up there is a brand of Atari, a brand that had massive momentum and then lost it. Um, it was interesting, you heard in the introduction from Jeff that I spoke at, at a conference with Steve Wozniak, Apple's co-founder. Now, interestingly, I was only thinking this this morning, it was actually on this stage in this room that, Apple, that, that um, Steve Wozniak and I were on the same program. I remember when I was speaking at this conference a few years ago here, thinking, I wonder if I'll get a chance to even meet him. I mean, it's worth a couple of billion, he's sort of a big deal. And um, what was interesting is, if you know anything of his reputation, very chilled out, down to earth, humble, unassuming, I actually got the chance in one of the rooms back over here, the green room backstage, we spent about 20 minutes just chatting about some of these brands. And it was interesting, speaking with Steve Wozniak, he said, for him, the saddest one is Atari because he said, I wish you could have seen it. When Steve Jobs and I started Apple, our goal was to build a company modelled on Atari. He said, at the time, they were at the cutting edge. It was like shorthand for innovation. In fact, one of the saddest moments a few weeks, a few months ago now, I was speaking at an event in New Zealand, and this 22-year-old um, young woman put up her hand and said, sorry, we're talking about a case study of Atari here. I'm just curious, what is Atari? <laughs> and like, that's when you start feeling old, isn't it? Right, who else doesn't know what Atari is? I should just check. It's a few of you. Okay, interesting. All right, we might have a separate seminar at lunch, and we'll go, like, go through a YouTube clip and show you how Atari worked. 
Okay, but you think about the significance of all these businesses. And what I looked at in this research, and by the way, the research essentially looked at two questions. First question was, why does this happen? Why do the mighty fall? But the second question is a more important question, which is, why do the enduring prevail? And these two questions essentially form the basis of a book that came out a few years ago called Winning the Battle for Relevance. And my goal with this book was to essentially look at these two notions. Why do businesses lose their edge? Like, what's the, what are the telltale signs so we don't fall into the same trap? But more importantly, what, about, what, if, what if we studied businesses that have lasted a long time? Like years, decades, in some cases, centuries. There are a number of businesses up on the screen behind me here that have been around for well over two centuries. They've seen a lot of change, a lot of cycles in their time, and you'd have managed to stay at the cutting edge. Sends that to me, there is a brand of Lego. I mean, Lego this year is, I think, 91 years old. And it's interesting that as a business, they are more successful, more profitable, noteworthy now than ever before. And they've managed, I mean, they, they lost momentum in the early 2000s. In fact, in 2004, Lego was seven months away from bankruptcy. They were in serious trouble. We didn't know this until years later because it's a privately held company. No one knew. But it was serious times because, of course, as video games came to the fore, kids stopped playing with Lego. So what did Lego do? They launched their own video games. And in recent years, of course, they've gone into making movies and the, the, the entertainment side of their business is massive. And so looking at some of these businesses, the question of what have they done that's allowed them to stay at the cutting edge, stay on that growth trajectory. And we'll talk about a, a couple of the themes this morning, things like the importance of having an agile culture, willingness to adapt and evolve in the face of change. Um, the importance of innovation is key. But one theme in this research came up time and time again. And it was this theme of momentum. The reason these businesses are on this screen is because they'd managed to, they'd figured out, often by mistake, how to master the art of keeping momentum, that inner dynamism going in a business or a brand. And when I started working with clients around this theme, the reality was there's actually very little good stuff out there about how to do this in the business world. I mean, John Maxwell's written a few books about it. Darren Hardy wrote a book called The Compound Effect that talked a little bit about this. But really... There's not a lot of good research about what is it that keeps momentum going in a business. So I set out to look at that. And so I spent a year and a bit researching this theme. We'll pick up on some of that research this morning. But what's interesting, though, is this. Even though momentum is a scientific concept, it's actually really difficult to pin down in a business. I mean, if I were to ask you, how would you know right now in your business if you've got momentum? I wonder what sort of ways you'd look to give evidence to that. It's really difficult to quantify momentum because, see, momentum's a bit like inspiration. You know when you've got it, and it's exciting, but you also know when it evaporates and disappears. Like, where did it go? And momentum's a little bit the same. The interesting thing is it's hard to quantify, but it's very easy to discern. Every one of us in this room, myself included, we know what it feels like when you've got that tailwind of momentum propelling you along. And in fact, when I'm working with clients and I say, how would you know if you've got momentum? I listen for phrases like this. There'll be phrases like, it just feels like we're, we're in the zone. We're firing on all cylinders. Now we're in this position where we're in a groove, we're in sync. Everyone in the team sort of singing from the same song sheet. We're in our element. There's a sense of flow state, going with a flow. Now you, you get your downline team together and, you know, every time you get together, suddenly the numbers have just naturally grown. You've got to get more chairs out. It's just like... How's this all happening? It's so exciting when you've got momentum. But every one of us knows what it feels like. And a couple of the knowing nods and smiles, you know what it feels like when you lose it. And we've all been there. You know, and it can happen so quickly. Like in the space of a couple of months, you can go from being in this position here 
to saying, well, actually, it feels like we've lost that. Suddenly, these are the phrases you tend to hear from people. It feels like we've gone from being in a groove to being in a rut. And we'll identify what's the difference between a groove and a rut this morning as we go along, okay? It feels like you're just, you've lost traction. It's a daily grind. You're going through the motions. You're doing all the same stuff, but the zest is gone. That tailwind that was propelling you along feels like it's become a headwind. And we'll talk this morning about how do you make sure you get above the line, and if you sink below the line here, you get back up the top again. But before we do that, I want to challenge you to reflect on your own experience. You know, not just in a business context, but maybe in a sports team you've been a part of, or if you're in a local community group, or a church, or a charity, you've been part of groups that have had momentum and lost it. I want you to reflect on your own experience for a few moments. And this is a question I want to challenge you to think about. In your experience, what are some of the factors that cause an individual or a team to get into a rut, to lose momentum. So I want to give you a couple of minutes, just in groups of two or three, just reflect on your own experience and at a gut level, what have you seen that causes this to happen? So a couple of minutes, groups of two or three, go for it, then we'll come back and share. got any thinking music by any chance? It's very awkward when it's silent, isn't it? <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you. Let's do 30 more seconds, 30 seconds to go. Okay, 10 seconds to go, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, Five, four, three, two, one. All right, let's just get a sense of what the discussions then were. Who's brave enough to kick us off? What are some of the things you've experienced that cause a team or an individual to get into a rut? Yeah, what did you say here? Yeah, losing. Uh-huh. Oh, some great stuff there. So losing passion, losing joy, but also losing the courage to change and to adapt. Isn't it funny that the word encouragement, you can actually, when you give encouragement, it actually gives courage. Something in that that's powerful in itself. It's interesting. Thank you. Yeah, great. There's a couple of hands behind you. What did you say? Yeah. Lose vision. I love that. And you're one of the newbies to put your hand up. Cool. Perfect. We'll talk about that. Vision is critical. You're spot on. Thank you. Yeah. Complacency. That's so true. Yeah. 
It's so true. Complacency. I heard a great saying years ago, and it's so true, that the moment you think you've made it, you've passed it. And once you get to the point where you think, not only do you feel like you've got nowhere to grow personally, like you know it all, I mean, that's dangerous, but also when you feel like you've arrived in terms of your business and it goes to this theme of not adapting to change, like, hey, we've got the winning formula. I know exactly the script to use with new clients or new prospects, and then you lock it in stone. And that might work now, but as times evolve and adapt, we, we get stuck and we think that's the only way to do it. Well, it's not. It's not how you do it now. And you need to adapt and change as times move on. So, perfect. Thank you. Any other things? What have you experienced? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, great. Yeah, perfect. It's like you read my notes. I love this. Okay, so setting goals, but not just the big goals and knowing why you said you're working toward them, but also the little goals along the way. Absolutely. And it's a combination of the two. Perfect. Thank you. What did you There's a hand over here. I thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. You stop doing the basics again. It's a theme we'll touch on in the next few moments. Thank you. All right, one more. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Being drawn into other people's habits. Yeah, yeah, because comparisons are dangerous, aren't they? Particularly, by the way, when you come to a conference like this and you hear what other people are doing, it's easy to think, oh, maybe I should do that too. If you take four or five other people's opinions, you'll leave here more confused than when you arrived. And where there's confusion, where there's a lack of clarity, you won't do stuff. And so, I mean, you need to pick a lane and be mindful of that. That can, I mean, it's great to share ideas, but it's dangerous at times when you're trying to take too much on. Look, there's some gold there. Brilliant. Good insights because we'll touch on many of those themes as we go along. And, you know, in school, we were taught the formula for momentum in the scientific world, and that's momentum is velocity times mass. I want to give you this morning the business formula for momentum, okay? And this is for any business, but particularly for your business. In this style or structure of organization, this formula is absolutely critical. And there are three elements, okay? And the first element, here's the formula on the screen if you want to jot this down. Momentum equals A plus F times C. Three elements. And if you're at a point right now where you think, well, you know, my business isn't firing on all cylinders, we're really not in that groove that I'd love, I bet there'll be a re- the reason for it will be one of these three elements or a combination of the three. And just so you sort of know the structure where we're going, we'll, f- we'll talk about the first element, the A, up until the break, and then we'll come back and talk about the second two elements after we come back from the morning tea break. So let's launch straight in. The A in this formula stands for activity. And that should be no massive surprise because, of course, momentum is about motion. It's about being in motion for you to distinct. And so activity has got to be part of that. However, there's one key thing I'd love for you to stick with you as we go along throughout our time together this morning. It's this. Not all activity is created equal. There is no point being busy if you are not being effective or productive. I remember speaking with an a, a audience member at an event in Perth about 12 months ago who was a financial planner, ran a big financial planning business in Perth. And you could tell he wanted to chat, so I was doing book signings afterwards, and he sort of just hung back waiting until everyone had finished, and we had a bit of a chat at the end. And he said, you know, I, I've been in business for 20-something years. I've got a whole pile of staff. And you could just see he was just he was tired, just like worn out. And he said, the frustration I've got right now is I said, I feel like my team and I, we have never worked so hard but it feels like we're just not getting the results. It feels like we're not getting traction. We're just spinning our wheels. And as I started looking, we started talking through the stuff they were doing, a lot of the challenge was they were in busy work. They were busy doing activities that weren't getting results. And the reality, the truth is, there is no point 
going 100 miles an hour if you're heading in the wrong direction. I mean, the faster you go, the further off track you go. And you can be busy and feel great because you've got so much frenetic pace happening around you, but if it's not on purpose or in the right direction, it's not going to serve you well. Now, I first learned the print, this principle back when I was a, a teenager in scouts. Anyone else a scout when they were younger, just out of interest? Any other scouts or guides? Or It's interesting, to be a scout back in the day, there, was only, there were only really two skills required. And the first one was you had to be able to set fire to pretty much anything. And we were excellent <laughs> at that in my scout troop. And the second skill was you had to know how to navigate. And these are the days before Google Maps and GPS. And when we'd get dropped off at a location and have to navigate or orienteer for three days from a Friday afternoon to a Sunday afternoon, all we had to navigate with were these two items here, a compass and a map. And we were given the, the, the point we had to finish at and said, see you in three days, try not to die or burn everything down between <laughs> now and then. And, but the first thing we were trained that we had to do before we took a step off go, we said to calibrate your compass and your map. See, the difference between magnetic and true north is only very slight, but it's enough that if you don't do this, if you don't calibrate your compass and your map, you can be wandering off track by tiny degrees over time, not knowing it, of course. And the further you go, the faster you go, the more off track you get, and suddenly you think you're ending up at this point and you're a whole hill or a valley away. And it's exactly the same in business. If you're working hard, but it's not calibrated, it's not in the right direction, you're going to find you're spinning your wheels and not getting traction or just going the wrong way entirely. Now, no one does this on purpose, so how could you make sure that your activities are not going to leave you spinning your wheels rather than getting traction? A four-way test. There's a four ways to, to look at what you're doing to build your business on a daily basis and ask, are these things going to get me momentum or not? Okay, so if you've got something to jot some notes down on with, go through this pretty quick, okay? The first one is this. You need to look at your activities and ask, Really honestly, of the things that I'm doing right now to build my business on a daily or a weekly basis, are my activities inspired? And this goes to a theme that was mentioned a few times just before. Is that sense of purpose and zeal and passion and enthusiasm behind what I'm doing, or am I just doing the hard work? Now, I had a really interesting experience recently in New Zealand speaking at a conference over there and the other keynote speaker at this event, and I should just take any Kiwis in the room here this morning, any Kiwis? Got one Kiwi. Are you like a current Kiwi or an ex-Kiwi? An ex-Kiwi. You may not know this guy. I don't know if you will. So let's test your Kiwiness here. Do you know who this guy up on the screen here is? No. Anyone else know who this guy is? All the, all the New Zealanders would know. Do you know who he is? Yes, Steve Hansen is his name. He's the coach of the All Blacks. Now, interestingly, by the way, apparently, if you know anything of him, that's as close as you get to a smile from Steve Hansen ever, okay? Very serious looking dude. But I was chatting with Steve Hansen backstage at this conference, and I mean, the coach of the All Blacks, I mean, the All Blacks, even as an Aussie, we've got to acknowledge, they are the most extraordinary rugby team. I mean, statistically, I know what you're going to say that, aren't you? <laughs> of course. But, I mean, statistically, they're the most successful sporting team in the world's history. They're amazing. And what's interesting is you, you look at them as a, a team, and the question I ask Steve Hansen is, how do you keep this awesome team at the cutting edge? How do you maintain momentum in this, in this extraordinary team? And a few of the things he told me, he said, oh, you can't tell anyone else. This is like the secret sauce, okay? But a few, one thing he mentioned, he talked about from stage that afternoon. So I thought, well, if it's public knowledge, I can talk about it too. And what he said was this, his biggest challenge as a coach is to monitor where the team is dwelling, where their heads are at, what they're focusing on. He said the most dangerous thing for them as a team is when they focus on the past, like last week's match, last season's result. 
And he said, that's dangerous for two reasons. If it was a great match or a great season, so easily they slip into this trap of complacency we talked about. But interestingly, this was an interesting note, he said, but also by the same token, if it was a bad match or a bad season, he said, extraordinary how quickly their confidence can be knocked. Confidence is far more fragile than most of us realise. And some of you are coming into this conference this weekend and you've had a tough year or a tough month or a tough week. You've spoken to some people, you've got some rejection, there's just stuff going on. And just let's own the fact that sometimes, no matter how big your business is, no matter how long you've been doing this, confidence can be very fragile. And so we so said the dangerous thing is when they focus in the past, good or bad, that's dangerous. The second more dangerous place for them to focus or to be dwelling is the present, like just this training match or this training schedule, this workout routine, this week's, this week's menu or, or health regime. He said that's dangerous when they just focus on the stuff that's immediate. He said my constant challenge is to keep them focused on the future, to keep them stretched. What's the next goal, the next thing we're working toward? In fact, one word he mentioned which was interesting is the word legacy. I need this team to have so fixed in their mind that they are wearing a jersey that they inherited that they'll pass on to someone else. This will long outlive them. He said that sense of, of future focus is incredibly powerful. And my question is, when you're doing stuff on a daily or weekly basis in your business, how connected are your activities with that reason behind them? That sense of purpose. And we heard about this this morning. And it's so important. Because here's the challenge. You cannot give away what you haven't got. If you are not inspired and excited about your business, how can you possibly inspire or excite others to want to join you? And the reality is people sniff it. They sense it. They pick it up. I actually learned this a few years ago. My wife's an actor and a producer for live theatre. It was interesting. We were at a stage show in Sydney, Sydney Theatre Company. Amazing show, amazing script, amazing cast. But we left and walking back to the car, I said, gee, it felt a bit flat tonight. I'm surprised. I, I, get, I said, you know, this, this show I've been going for months at the time. I said, well, maybe that's just what happens is that after you're doing a show night after night after night, it starts to get a bit, you know, a bit flat. She said, well, actually, no. She said, that's the skill of a really good actor. And she's been in shows that have gone for months at a time. And she said that the, the real skill in being a good actor is not just making sure you keep your energy high. She said, that's part of it. She said, the big challenge is every moment of every show, you've got to keep your actions and your words connected to the motivation behind them. And I said, I didn't quite understand the theme, so she sort of told me how it works. She said, if you're on stage as an actor, the tears can be streaming down your face, your voice can be breaking, or you can be exuberant, excited, or powerful, but if you're doing all the right actions, using your voice correctly, even if your physicality is spot on, but you're thinking about, what am I going to have for dinner when I get home? If you are not connecting what you're doing with the motivation behind it for your character, Instantly, there's a disconnect. The audience pick it up. There's a sense of inauthenticity, a lack of potency. And it's exactly the same for you and your business. If you're speaking to people about you know, the compensation plan and the products and the business opportunity, and you're just sort of going through the motions, saying all the right things, but you're not actually inspired and excited, they'll pick up on it. Even if you say, I'm excited, I'm inspired. If you're not, they'll know. Now, I'm guessing this morning, I'm looking at a group of people who are determined and committed to build a business. You wouldn't be here. I mean, particularly the guys that have traveled internationally. You wouldn't be here unless you were determined and committed. That's great. But it's not enough. It's just not. And here's the reason. Determination and commitment are impressive virtues, but they're not infectious. You get around people who are determined and committed, 
But if you ever notice some people who are ultra-determined, ultra-committed, sometimes they make you just sort of want to step back. It's like it's just overwhelming, like just calm down, okay? But you get around people who are enthusiastic, passionate, zealous, purpose-filled, that you catch that. That's infectious. And so for some of you, your biggest homework, the most important thing for you to do before you get back to your teams, back to your business, even before you get back to your teams and say, hey, okay, Caribbean's on the, on the table. How do we get there as a group? Before you even have that conversation, get super clear. What's your why? Make sure everything you're doing, every conversation, every phone call, every product demo, before you step into it, get back to why am I doing this? What's the purpose? What's the sense of passion here? Because if it's not clear, people will pick it up. So for some of you, find some time. Sit down and write it. What's the why? What's the why for the next month, the next six months, the next 12 months? Maybe it is that sense of legacy for you and your family. What's that passion in the belly? Because people will pick up on that. It was interesting. I was thinking of this just this morning, looking at you know, the additives range for you guys for cars, and I thought of this. It's almost like being busy without being passionate. It's like running an engine without oil. You can run that engine hard and fast for a little while, but an engine without oil, doesn't matter how good the engine is or how good the fuel is, an engine without oil, eventually, it'll blow up, seize up or melt down. And see, our souls were a bit the same. When you work hard, but it's not a sense of passion behind it, the harder you push yourself, the more prone you are to break down. And that's the challenge you often see when people get busy doing the what and they don't know the why, it starts to eat away at you. So the first key is you need to ask, are my activities inspired? Okay. Second question, if you want to make sure your activities will build momentum rather than leave you just spinning your wheels, you need to ask, are my activities innovative? Am I doing things sufficiently in a sufficiently new way to keep up with trends? Now, this whole theme of trends is probably what's absorbed me in the last 12 to 14 months. In fact, I had a book come out a few months ago all about what's the future going to look like. And we're looking at things like robotics and artificial intelligence and nanotechnology. I mean, yesterday, so... In fact, let, get this, yesterday's conference was 1,200 surgeons in Sydney. Imagine how serious they were. Like, you're my crowd. Okay, like, this is much more comfortable. Like, these were very serious people. And it was interesting talking to them about some of the future trends in, in the health sector. Do you know 40% of robots sold every, everywhere in the world right now are sold for surgical purposes? 80% of prostate surgeries today are done using, um, using robotic surgeons. Check it out. Do a Google search for the Da Vinci robotic surgeon. It's extraordinary technology. At a micro scale, this is extraordinary doing the research for this presentation yesterday. One of the biggest game changers is, is what they're calling nanobots. So nanotechnology is a study of particles that are a hundredth the size of a millimeter. They are tiny. And these are tiny, tiny bots, robots that will be insert that you'll be injected into your bloodstream. And these are being developed with a combination with, with a partnership from Arizona State University and the Chinese Center for Neuro Nanoscience and Technology. This is happening right now. These get injected into your body. These tiny little robots, they go around your body, they identify tumors, cancer tumors, and they will inject a tiny amount of thrombin, which is an enzyme for, enzyme for blood clotting, and it cuts off the blood supply for that tumor. It begins shrinking within two days. And these are robots that we couldn't have possibly imagined, and they're infinitesimally small. I mean, this is the stuff that's coming. You look at... I mean, like, I was on the Today Show last Saturday, about this time last Saturday, doing a segment on Uber Air. Remember Uber Air, this announcement last week? So they're looking to have trials beginning 2020 of drone transportation around major cities in Australia. Melbourne, Sydney, Los Angeles, Dallas. These are the four they're going to start off with. And then you look at the whole driverless car phenomenon. I mean, it's just extraordinary when you think about the stuff that's coming and how it's going to change society and the workplace. And so a lot of my work with businesses, if you're going to keep momentum up in the years to come, we've got to gear up for change. 
because change is happening far more quickly than most of us would like. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's confronting. But it can be an opportunity if you're agile and ready for it. I love this quote here um, from Jack Welch, the former CEO of GE. He said, the moment the rate of change outside an organization exceeds the rate of change within it, the end is near. How true is that? That's when you lose momentum, is when what's happening outside the business is moving faster than what's happening in the business. And part, part of that, by the way, is our mentality. We've got to keep our mentality um, up to speed as well, not just our business practices. I love this quote. This is one of my favorite quotes right now. It's 2,600 years old, but I reckon it's more relevant now than ever. Okay, this is a quote from Lao Tzu, the great Chinese philosopher. Resisting change, he said, is a bit like trying to hold your breath. Even if you are successful, okay, it's not going to end well, okay? And I love that because, again, it's true. We can't resist these changes. How do we, in a business context, keep up with the changes happening around us? And what I want to look at very briefly, if we're going to keep an innovation mindset within your teams and within this business, a couple of keys to doing that, okay, to make sure that your activities stay at the cutting edge. Four keys to cultivating an innovation mindset. Number one, first key is you've got to leverage fresh eyes. If you're going to stay innovative, sufficiently innovative to keep momentum up, you've got to realize the fresh eyes are the most important eyes in your team. That's why I asked too before, who are the newbies here? Because the newbies, oh, that's, that's a bit of a derogatory term. Those who are, like, who are new, been around for a couple of months, you guys have the most important perspective in the room here this morning. The reason is because you don't know how stuff's been done for years. No one's showed you yet. That gives you an, an innate ability to see things differently, to see things from a different perspective. I love the insight from the late Dr. Wayne Dyer who said this, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. This is when paradigm shifts occur. And the beauty of people with fresh eyes is they'll come into this business, into your team, and they'll just look at stuff differently. And they'll look at things with a different perspective. They'll see things that everyone else might have missed. You know what else? They'll have no trouble thinking outside the box because they don't even know what the box looks like at this point. No one's told them. I love this student's exam response as a case in point of you know, thinking outside the box, okay, and seeing something the experts had missed, okay? Now, by the way, teachers, school teachers tell you this is not called fresh eyes. This is called smart something else, okay? But you can, it's true. It makes the point. Seeing something that the experts had missed, that's the power of fresh eyes. You know, the beautiful thing, though, about fresh eyes that leads to innovation is people with fresh eyes will come into your team and they'll ask the most important innovation question of all, the question of why. They'll come in, they'll look at the way you do things, they'll say, hey, just curious, why do you do it that way? Or why do you do it at all? Going to the point we talked about before, what's the purpose? What's the point here? What are we working towards? And I reckon the best example I've come across of this from an innovation standpoint was an example from the Army a few years ago. There were a group of young recruits doing their basic training. When they got to one point, in their training where they were being taught how to use these things here, artillery guns. And the instructing officer was going through step by step how to use an artillery gun. He got to one point in the lesson. And he said, okay, when you load a round into the artillery gun, you need to count eight seconds from when you load it to when you fire it. Not seven seconds, not nine, it's got to be eight seconds. Now, this young recruit did something that young recruits, or particularly Gen Y or millennials, we'll talk about them shortly, something they always seem to do, which is ask why? Now, that's not really encouraged in a military environment, typically, okay? So this guy puts up his hand, so why? Like, what's the deal with the eight seconds? Now, you can imagine how well this went down with the officer, okay? He dismissed the question, got on with the lesson. But the question actually stuck with the officer. And a couple of days later, he was chatting to a colleague, another officer, and said, do you know why we do the eight-second thing? 
I actually don't know. So one of the young grunts asked, and I didn't tell him I didn't know, but I didn't know. And the other officer said, oh, I haven't got a clue. So they said, let's do some research. They went through some old archives. Here's what they discovered. The reason for the eight-second rule actually dates back to the mid-1800s when we used to use horses to drag artillery guns to the front line. And what they had discovered in the 1800s was this. On average, it takes about eight seconds to move the horses far enough back away from the guns so that when you fire the guns, the horses won't get freaked out by the noise. Now, we haven't used horses to drag artillery guns for a couple of decades now, but the rule had stuck. Even though it made no sense, it served no purpose. And you might think that's crazy, and it is, okay? But be honest. You look at your business. Is it possible? There are systems, processes, ways you do things on a daily basis, even scripting that you use when you're talking to people about the products or the, or, or the business, things that made sense five years ago. But maybe times have changed, things have moved on, and yet we get stuck doing it because it's the way it's always been done. Just like the example of the military, the beauty of fresh eyes, they come in and see that stuff for what it is, and they just ask, why? Like, what's the deal with that? That can be a gift for you if you're a leader. And by the way, you're a leader if you go on personally downline team. That's all it takes to qualify to be a leader in this business. I hope you know that. As a leader, that's a gift. If you've got people coming in asking why, respond well to that question. Don't see it as a challenge, as a threat. See it as an opportunity to learn and grow and think. That's where innovation so often occurs. Okay, third key, or second key, sorry, is you need to embrace diversity and dissent. You need to have diverse points of view if you're going to have an innovation culture in a business. Now, if you look at the first part, of course, diversity is critical because homogenous groups are dangerous. Why? Because homogenous groups tend to develop collective blind spots. We all look the same way, with the same perspective, the same assumptions, therefore we miss things that are just outside our frame of view. This is the beauty of having diversity in a team, having different perspectives, people with different age backgrounds, different demographic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different educational backgrounds. We just see stuff differently. And that you know, diversity is a beautiful thing in a team or an organisation because it brings higher thinking, better quality thinking. You look at the danger of this, look at the example of Daewoo. Daewoo Automotive, in the years just prior to their demise as a business, if you look to their leadership team, two-thirds of them had gone to the same high school. Half of them had gone to the same university. You had a company where everyone in that company had the same way of thinking, the same perspective, the same assumptions, grew up together. And so the danger is they had the same blind spots. And when it comes to dissent, and let's call this out here, one of the beautiful things about your business and this whole industry is positivity. I love it. I mean, I grew up around the direct selling business. My parents were in direct selling business from when I was eight. So this environment I grew up in. Some of you who are worried about your kids, by the way, Oh, what happens when I'm out building a business? What happens to your kids? Do you know what happens to your kids when you're building a business like this? This is the sort of stuff that happens to your kids when you're out building this business. Because like, I grew up in this environment, reading the books, listening to speakers. And so what the interesting thing is, growing up in this business, I know how wonderfully positive it is. The challenge with that, and there is a challenge, is that sometimes we don't promote enough dissenting views. Because to say something, they say, oh, I'm not sure about that. What if we did it this way differently? That's often seen as something that in our culture we edify our leaders, we don't challenge the system. And yet, one of the encouraging things I'd give you is this. We need to create an environment where if people see things differently in your team, they feel able to share those dissenting different perspectives with you without feeling like it's de-edifying you as the leader. 
I love this insight from Peter Drucker, probably one of the most key leadership thinkers of the last century. He said, the first rule in decision-making is do not make a decision until there's first been disagreement. And yet so often in business, we don't make a decision until everyone else, everyone's on the same page. You know, make sure everyone agrees and then we just do it. Well, maybe the most important thing is to get different points of view, different perspectives, because it sharpens our thinking. All right, number three, third key to cultivating an innovation mindset this is key. Think revolution, not evolution. Think revolution, not evolution. Most of us think of innovation as an evolutionary process. We just do things this year a little bit faster, a bit cheaper, incremental change. But can I suggest incremental evolutionary change ain't going to cut it in the years to come as we look at the changes that are coming down the line. I love this insight from the former head of business at San Francisco University, Oren Harari, said, Remember, the electric light never came from the continuous improvement of candles. <laughs> Isn't that great? Because it's so true. Didn't matter how good you got at making candles, how long the candles lasted for, there came a point where a fundamental rethink in how we made light needed to occur. And it's exactly the same for all of us. And by the way, it's not just changing the way you do business stuff on a daily basis. It's often changing the way we think. That's where the revolution needs to occur. I love this insight from Albert Einstein. We cannot solve the problems of life using the same kind of thinking we had when we created them. And by the way, this is why conferences are important like this because it gives you a different mindset, different mentality. All right. I love some examples, though, of this. How do you think in, an evolutionary, in a revolutionary way rather than an evolutionary way? Because evolutionary change is, is, is easy to get stuck in. In fact, I think probably one of the most successful businesses of the last few decades got stuck in a mindset that held them back for a few years. In this example of Apple, when Apple went into the iTunes music business, what they did is they took the existing mentality of music and they, they placed it over the notion of iTunes. That existing notion was you need to pay for the music you listen to. You need to own it. Now, of course, in iTunes, you could own one song, not a whole album. So that was a big shift. But they still had this fundament fundamental mentality you have to pay for music. Challenge was the mindset changed as soon as these guys entered the market. When Spotify and Pandora came along and said, no, no, don't pay for the music, just pay a subscription, stream the music, pay one thing a month and you listen to as much music as you like for a, a long while, almost 14 months, Apple resisted this. They said, no, no, we're going to stick with our pay, to, pay for music approach because they were locked into that mentality. And they were having evolutionary change, but what was required was a revolutionary shift in their mindset. And it took them a while to get there, but when they did, they launched Apple Music. Do you know Apple Music? In fact, it was so late to market, Apple spent a good 12 months catching up. This is the great Apple were caught. They were left behind when the market changed. Now, they have caught up now to the point where 38 million Apple Music subscribers, next March or April, I don't know if you know this, next March or April, Apple will actually shut down the download section of their website. You will no longer be able to pay for music from mid next year onwards. Everything will be streamed. So that's how much they've caught up with this. But this is the challenge. How do you have a revolutionary approach, not an evolutionary approach to innovation? Right? Number four, this is key. You need to focus on friction. If you're going to build an innovation mindset in a team, focus on friction. You know what friction is? Friction is the stuff that adds complexity Frustration, confusion, disappointment, irritation, red tape, bureaucracy. And can I suggest as a business, the friction you are unwilling to address is a friction that will leave you open to being disrupted by a competitor. good example of this, in fact, is this business here. 
Anyone here heard of TransferWise before? Anyone familiar with it? Okay, TransferWise is extraordinary. This is, this is a company to watch. So I use them again recently, for the, for, and they're just extraordinary and so easy to use. They're a company that allow you to transfer money from one country to another in a way that no bank can. Next time you have to transfer money overseas, do not go to your bank. Just don't. I guarantee you, you would be glad you didn't if you use these guys here. Because here's the genesis story of TransferWise. It's an interesting example. A number of years ago now, the two founders of TransferWise were actually two people who worked for Skype. And they were posted from Skype's head office in Estonia, that's where Skype's from, to London to open up the British market. When they arrived in London to set up business for Skype, they encountered the biggest frustration any expat employee has ever had, which is how do I get money, my salary, from my home account to the place I'm now working in? Every month they had to ring up their bank account in Estonia, their bank in Estonia, arrange a physical wire transfer of their salaries. It took days to arrive, cost a huge amount of money in fees, and they asked themselves this question, why is it so hard to transfer money from one country to another? What is the deal with it? Who's ever asked themselves that question? I have many times. So they asked themselves this question. They go to the next step and think, how could we reduce the friction? How could we make this easier? And they invented TransferWise. And this is a, what they call a peer-to-peer transaction platform where if I've got, say, Aussie dollars and someone's got British, British pounds and I want pounds, they want dollars, we essentially swap in real time with almost no fees. And it takes a fraction of time. And this has got so big, I was working with one of the banks last year and the head of currency exchange for this bank over the lunch break sidled up to next to me at the buffet and said, you know what, in reality, we'll probably look to exit currency exchange in 18 months' time. He said, we cannot compete with TransferWise anymore. This is a big bank. Now, here's an interesting thought. The banks could have done this. They could have created TransferWise. Why didn't they? Because they were enjoying a whole lot of money from friction. And here's the thing, they took us for granted. They got to a point where every consumer expects it'll take a whole lot of time because a whole lot of fees are, let's just all do the same thing the other banks are doing until someone, some, suddenly a disruptor came in and said, we can make it easy for the consumer. And then the banks were in catch-up mode. Now, can I suggest it's exactly the same for you as a business? What you cannot afford to do is get stuck, getting used to friction, things being complex and difficult and bureaucratic because another competitor will come in and make it easy for consumers. Now, can I suggest from an innovation standpoint, the most important skill in innovation is not necessarily creativity. It's something beginning, bless you, something beginning with E. If you want to write this down, it's the word empathy. If you can empathize with that new distributor, what's the experience like for them when they join this business? If you can empathize with the end user, that's where the most powerful innovations occur. Good example of that is this company here, Costa Coffee a few years ago. Notice their personal spend was stagnating. They were losing momentum as a business. And what was interesting is this. At first, they thought it was all because of coffee price, food range, decor. And then they did some research. They sent one of their executives out to one of the stores, sat near the front door and said, just watch customers in their natural habitat. Tell us what you notice. And here's what they noticed. Every fourth or fifth customer would walk in, look around, take a quick look, then walk straight back out the door having not ordered anything. And they thought, that's interesting. What's that about? So after watching this happen time and time again, this executive followed one of the customers down the street, caught up and said, well, I'm just curious. I said, I didn't buy anything today. Is there something we need to know? And the woman said, oh, sorry, this is my local Costa cafe. I, I come here all the time. But the challenge is, she said, I, um, I've got my laptop with me. It's almost out of battery. And because I know the cafe well, I walked in and I knew that all the, all, the caf- all the tables next to PowerPoints were taken. 
And she said, I realized I have to go somewhere else for my coffee today. And it's like, oh, that's the issue. PowerPoints. He goes back to the cafe. He says to the barista, did you know we're losing customers because there's not enough PowerPoints in here? And get this, the barista said, oh, yeah, we lose people for that all the time. Uh, the barista knew who didn't know head office. See, what? that was the point of friction. They went back, doubled the number of PowerPoints in their cafes. Within six months, their purse store spend had surged 21%. Now, it probably wasn't all about PowerPoints, but that was part of it because it addressed the point of friction. So I'd ask you, what are the points of friction? What's causing frustration, complexity, irritation, over, an overload of paperwork? Because if you can deal with friction, that's where the most powerful innovations occur. All right. So we've asked, are your activities inspired? Are they innovative? We've talked about how to drive an innovation culture. Third question you need to ask is, are my activities intentional? How intentional are the things I'm doing on a daily basis? Now, I wonder how many of you remember from when you were kids at school a game called Rock, Paper, Scissors. Remember Rock, Paper, Scissors? Right, quick refresher. Remember that Rock beat Scissors. Okay, Scissors beat Paper, Paper beat Rock. Okay, we're going to have a quick game of Rock, Paper, Scissors here this morning. So you need to find a partner. Turn to someone... Either side of you, you reckon by the look of it, you can probably beat at rock, paper, scissors. Okay, so pair up. It's going to be the best of three rounds. Okay, are you ready? And one, two, three. All right. Round number two. And one, two, three. All right. Here's the decider. Are you ready? And one, two, three. All right. Good, good, good. Okay, those of you who just won in your little pairs, you're going to be the talkers for the next few moments. And those of you who just lost, you're going to be the listeners. But if you're the talkers, here's what I want you to do. Turn to your partner in the space of 20 seconds. Describe for them step-by-step step in chronological order the process for you of getting in your car and driving to the end of your street at home. So 20 seconds, describe that process step-by-step, step, and then we'll come back. There's going to be a test, okay? 20 seconds, go for it. Okay, five seconds to go. Five, four, three, two, and one. All right. Okay, those of you who are the listeners just then, I hope you are paying close attention because here is the test. Okay, in a few moments, I'm going to put up on the screen here a series of nine steps. Okay, if you're the listener, have a look at this list of nine steps here and put your hand up if your partner missed at least one of these steps in their description just then. Who missed at least one of these? Who missed all nine of them? Anyone miss all nine steps? It's always a couple. Now, here's the interesting thing. I'm guessing most of you do most of those things every time you get in your car and drive to the end of your street. But here's the challenge. Driving to the end of your street is something you do so often, so unconsciously. When I ask you to make it conscious or explicit, it's actually hard to do, isn't it? And here's the challenge. It's exactly the same in business. You know, many of you probably heard that, that piece of data that it takes 21 days to form a mental habit. Who's heard that before, 21 days? Do you know there was never any research that went into that claim, like ever? <laughs> I reckon, like, probably Tony Robbins said it years ago, and I thought, oh, that sounds about right. We all repeated it. Now, University College in London looked at this two and a half years ago. Here's what they discovered. It actually takes, on average, three times as long as we thought. It takes 66 days to get to the point of what they call automaticity where you do things without consciously thinking about it. Now, how many of you have been in this business for more than 66 days? Hands up. Okay, lots of you. Here's the challenge with that. The moment you pass that threshold, 
According to Professor Bruce Lipton, who's a neuroscientist at Stanford, the moment you pass that threshold, about 90 to 95% of the things you do every day, you do without consciously thinking about it. You're on autopilot. And by the way, this is the difference between being in a groove and being in a rut. Being in a groove and being in a rut. A rut, of course, is when you're just doing things on autopilot, not thinking about it. A groove is when there's intentionality behind it. And you see so many businesses fall into this trap. I love this example here. A friend of mine took a photo of an application form for health insurance. And this was one of the questions. If you can't read it, it says, have you been in an accident that resulted in your death? Yes or no. Now, how does this happen? Because probably no one in that business has actually read through their forms for years. They just keep churning it out, even though it actually doesn't make any sense. Now, when it comes to intentionality, when it comes to intentionality, it's not just about the things you are doing, it's the things you're not doing. This goes to the point before, and it's so true. The question I'd ask you is this. What have you stopped doing? What are the basics you used to do when you were newer and fresher and didn't know any better? But as your business got bigger and more complex, as you became more sophisticated in business, it's easy to overlook the basics. That's the danger zone. That's the danger zone. All right, we've got a couple of minutes before we go to morning tea. I want to look at the fourth test, the fourth thing for making sure you build momentum that sticks, and that's this. You need to make sure your activities are relevant across the generation gap. You need to make sure your activities are intergenerational because generations, that's the pipeline. If you're not reaching out to the next generation, that is the long-term growth plan for any business. I mean, this whole theme of looking at generational change is where I started my research years ago. So I started researching generational trends back in 2004, looking at um, this group here, a group called Generation Y, um, sometimes called the Millennials. And they're an interesting bunch. Spent three and a bit years interviewing 80,000 of them. Um, starting back in 2004. The reason I started looking at this group is because we saw headlines like these ones flashing across newspapers around the world. And we are being told that Gen Y was self-centred, materialistic, impatient, all that sort of stuff. I remember thinking, is this true? Are we really as bad as everyone's saying? Because I'm in this group just. And just so you know some of the labels, these are the different generational groups that we've got to understand. For the sake of time, we won't go into this in too much depth. Maybe if we have time in the second session, if we've got questions, we can talk about generational change because it's so important in this business you get your head around this but if you look at millennials in particular and this is where I mean at the end of that three and a half year research project with 80,000 of them the first book I wrote was this book looking at how do you decode them how do you bridge the gap and connect with the younger generation because they're different they've got different mindsets different attitudes different expectations I mean here's some headline data 35 to 45 percent of discretionary spending power in Australia they're a massive cohort and they've got a lot of cash one of the reasons they're so cashed up, by the way, is they're still living at home. Okay, and that has a huge impact. Um, 54% of the stuff they buy, they buy online. Far more than that, they research online first. 78% would rather spend their money on experiences than stuff. Now, by the way, the gold, if you can make your stuff an experience, that's the sweet spot for millennials as a cohort. If you look at how you connect with this group from a um, communication perspective, this is a very important piece of research up here. What stands out to me most is this bit. You look at baby boomers, only 2.1% say the way we want you to connect with us most is through social media. In other words, pick up the phone, call us. Maybe send us an email, maybe even a letter or a catalogue. Gen Xers say 11.6% say what, uh, social media is helpful and important. Almost a quarter of Gen Ys and Millennials say, don't bother sending me a catalogue, don't even email me, don't even call me. Just send me something on social media. 
And so this is a very different generation. If we have time after the break, we'll come back and talk about some of the mindsets, the mentalities of this group, because it's so important we understand them.